Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to David Kramer, the CTO and founder at Sentry, and we discuss his transition from CEO to CTO, how their software monitoring is helping enable productivity, and the biggest lesson he's learned as an entrepreneur and founder. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. David. Hey, Joel. Good to meet you. Good to meet you, man. I'm, I'm pretty excited to talk with you specifically because like, you managed to take an open source project, build an open source project, and then build a business behind it. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Lots of, not even hustle, just lots of hard work. How long did it take from the time that you first had the idea to do the open source project until the open source project like actually existed? So... I don't know if this is kind of traditional for open source, but, um, you know, Sentry wasn't planned. It's actually probably very traditional in open source. Um, you know, I, I think you, you kind of have founders and they're just like, I'm going to build something and they just spin up ideas and they're like, okay, this is the one I'm going to build open source. A lot of this stuff is just born out of like, oh, I need to solve this problem right now. Um, that's no different for Sentry. It was, uh, it actually started as this example piece of code that somebody else uh, wanted to understand how to do. Think of it like stack overflow, but, I don't know, 12 years ago, um, you know, might've existed then, but, uh, yeah. So somebody asked how to, how to like capture these errors into a dashboard. And I'm like, Hmm, that's kind of interesting. Why would you need that? And I don't think you so much needed it 12 years ago, but yeah. So, so that started, um, sort of the project and I had a lot of open source projects. Basically everything I did was open source because I didn't see any reason for it to not be. And Sentry was just one of them that kind of kept growing with me and I kept investing into, and, um, I don't know, just, a very long, uh, continually iterative journey of, of that investment, I guess, has uh, kind of grown it through different stages ultimately to where it is today. And so did you get like some early contributors that like really helped keep the momentum going? So I think for me, you know, I think different people get excited by different things. Like, you know, building things was like building software is always my hobby. You know, I'm self-taught. Um, and having people use the software is kind of the thing that like drove me and developer tools are like having your peers use your software. So it's even better. Um, and so we had some contributors, but like, frankly, because of the way Sentry works, most of the contributors ended up uh, contributing sort of integrations with third parties. So something like Slack, but imagine Slack 12 years ago, uh, or uh, integrating with new like programming languages. So like JavaScript was actually, um, the original implementation was contributed by, I believe, somebody that was working at Mozilla at the time. Um, so that's where a lot of it came in. But most of the core server I actually built myself and continued to, to, you know, hack on, I guess, in my free time. The name is awesome, Sentry. Was that the original name? So the original name was Django DB Log. It was very creative. So <laughs> Django it. is a web framework. Um, and it was a database log. Like, at the end of the day, it was very, very pragmatic. But... Um, no, so I, I joined a company called Discuss. Uh, they're not around so much anymore, but um, and they were using it, and it was not very good. And we had this thing. I, I think StarCraft II was about to come out, or it had just come out, or something like that. And, and so all of our projects, we were just naming after StarCraft units. <laughs> and uh, you tried to say, like, what unit sort of resembles what you're doing right here. And Sentry's a little bit of a stretch. But, uh, um, yeah, I mean, we ended up just renaming the project like rebuilt it sort of 
uh, at that point. And I, I think that's like really where the foundation of Century came into place. Like it, it was this open source thing. It did exist before that, but that's really where I spent a lot of time. And, and that sort of marked like a three-year journey of all nights and weekends kind of hacking on it. And it had grown significantly by that point too. And, and then what point were you like, when did you make your first dollar? I have a calendar reminder for this uh, because I can never remember. I think it was in, so it's 2020. Let me see if I can even, I think it was 20, no, it'd have been 2012-ish, probably early 2012. I'm going to, I might be off by one there, but uh, you know, we spent, I think two and a half to three years with it running as sort of a side project um, where, you know, we're just generating revenue and stuff and, and using that to fund, you know, server bills as well as fund like various sponsorships of, of third-party events and conferences and stuff um but it was very few dollars at first i would say we charged like nothing um which you know it was good and bad but i like the brand a lot you know i was checking out the website the you have like a really mo- i don't even know how to describe it it's like midnight cartoon or something and i don't know what what would you describe that as I would describe it as don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah. Um, yeah, we put a lot of, so my co-founder, um, basically the person who helped me start the business was uh, the head of design at Discuss. And so I convinced him to come along mostly because like I, I super value um, good product design and I can't do it that well myself. Like if I have to design something, it's just every shade of gray you can imagine. Um, <laughs> and so I, I roped him in and, and I think that, kept that foundation of like really, really caring about design. And it is certainly hard to keep that up. And I won't say we're perfect, but we invest a lot into visuals and to the point where like one of our core values, we say pixels matter. Um, And it's in the most like narcissistic way where it's like call out every minor detail and challenge like the minor details because like it adds up. Um, So like if you try to change something in the product and like the margins are off, you'll have like five people instantly call you out. And I'm like, we actually think that's super important because if you think about brand and we care a lot about brand, the first version of brand is visual at the end of the day. And so, so we've got a creative team that runs like the external brand, which you see on the marketing website, which is actually run by um, a former GitHubber who I think his claim to fame is the GitHub icon, which they still use today, or at least oh, cool. a variation of it. Um, but then we've got another team that runs like product experience as well. And, but it, yeah, it's a super important investment for us. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of of branding and design, and it just it's because when I interact with other products, like the moment I land on their website, I form an opinion on yeah. on their brand, and it gives me instant insight to what their product will be like, because it's just like these are the people that work there. You know what level of designers they have because a good designer will come in and if one part of the business is off, they'll deem this unacceptable and raise it up to the standard. And so you can kind of, you could tell so much about the collection of people by the products that they produce. Yeah. Yeah. I do think it's, it's really a representation of like what you care about or if you care at all, I guess at the end of the day, like ours is a representation that we really care about the results of our product and we've always been product first. And and so I I agree with you. I, I kind of look for it. And if, frankly, a, a product or a company has terrible design. Usually the product also ends up reflecting that. So I, I saw that you made a, made a move from you were like CEO founder, but then you moved to CTO. Now recently I like brought in 
like a VP of sales co-founder person to, to like run the sales organization and to handle that part. And that changed everything for my business. Like I'm a lot smaller than you. We're only eight people right now, but those, those initial people matter so much, right. To develop a solid foundation. And it just felt like a huge weight off my chest. How are you feeling after this transition? I feel great. Um, yeah. So the way I always tell people this is um, when I first raised money for the company, which is, you know, about five years ago now, uh, one of the first questions that was asked of me is like, do you want to be CEO? Which I actually think is a really, really important question to ask a founder because being CEO is very different than being a founder, right? And uh, I can't remember this, this clever quote, but um, my answer was, we'll see. And it reminds me of this movie where there's like, they're telling a story about some like monk or something and his answer is always, we'll see. Like, we'll see what's next kind of thing. And that was always my answer, like every year when I either somebody asked me of it, if I wanted to continue that role or if I asked myself of it. And then, you know, early last year, like the start of last year, I asked myself the question again. I'm like, yeah, I don't think I want to be CEO anymore. In the sense of like, the job was very much CEO. It was no longer founder. It was no longer like sort of just get to do anything like, you know, hack on stuff. It was very much like hire executives, manage executive teams, set strategy, like, and some of it was fun. But frankly, hiring executives is my least favorite task. Like it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's kind of one of those things like I'm a believer in do the thing you're great at because you have the most impact. And I am not great at running a go-to-market organization. I'm not great at, you know, doing executive sourcing or any of this other stuff. Um, I think I'm really good at product intuition and I'm very technical. Um, so I'm like, you know what, let me see if I can find somebody that like balances that out really well takes on more of that executive side. And it's been really great so far. Like we have a, our core executive team is basically, you know, we have myself, my co-founder, uh, and then I hired a CFO might be almost two years ago now. Um, and then now the CEO and that, that team's actually been really great for like a sounding board, which it, it just, it's kind of one of those things that for me, until I experienced it, having like a couple seasoned executives who were very trustworthy and you, you know, you could just guarantee they would execute on whatever they said. Um, I don't know. For me, so I would, I would agree. It was very much a game changer and, and still is, you know, we're six months into almost six um, into having Malin on board and uh, still going well. So, you know, I, I don't envy him right now having to deal with the sort of the current climate, but he's doing a great job. Right. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple of CEOs I, I've been, or CTOs I've been talking to that have had new CEOs like towards the beginning of the year or back in like October, November. And I'm just like, Oh man, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what a tough moment to walk into. But I'll tell you what, though, it really set the tone for like the next decade, right? Like you'll really get to understand who this person is and how they think and their capabilities. Yep. And you don't have to do all that communication. I mean, you have to do the communication to your team, but you don't have the responsibility of communicating to the entire org and all the investors. I, I like it. I definitely agree with you and the find what you're really good at and what lights a fire inside of you and then spend 80% of your time there. Yeah. Okay. Dude, this is, this is still early. I haven't done a podcast this early in a long, I don't think ever. I've done some late ones, like when we have to do Australia and stuff, but I, it's interesting how my mind's like in an entirely different gear. How are you feeling? Uh, better now with coffee. There yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not a great morning person. I have gone up a lot earlier, like consistently since, you know, shelter in place, which has been, I don't know, good, but I feel like I just don't know what to do with the rest of my day. Like 2 PM comes around and I'm like, I feel like I've done everything I'm going to get done. So now what kind of thing, but, uh, 
But yeah, a little early for me. I'm assuming you're on the West Coast as well. Um, no, I'm on the East Coast, but I usually ah, do. Okay. I, I mean, it's, so it's it's only 10 a around 10 a.m. here, but I usually don't do podcasts until like the afternoon. So my mornings, I get up pretty early. I usually get up around five or six, and then I I run, and then I make breakfast, and then I go lift weights, and then I uh, you know come into the office and like do all of my most important tasks first. And like, as far as like with the team and everything, and then, uh, I spend the afternoon in like podcast social mode, you know, cause that's like that 2 PM and it's like, all right, I've done everything or, you know, let's, uh, let's have some awesome conversations and things like that. So, uh, yeah, it's just different, but that's, that's the, the variety of life, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you sure. get in, do you get into any of the performance stuff or working out or personal development? I got into backpacking for quite a lot of oh, nice. uh, time and I just, I don't know, past couple of years, it was hard to find the time to do it. And, and this year it's not looking good just with uh, heart closures and everything else, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, we'll see. I was hoping to get back into it, but you know, the summer looks like it's shot at this point. It's weird how they can close the outside, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird concept. I'm hoping, yeah. I'm hoping they'll open some stuff back up. Wait, is stuff still closed there? Some of the stuff is, yeah. Okay. So, like, I think it's uh, case by case. Um, I think a lot of the national parks are still closed, and, and the sort of California stuff, it kind of depends, but we'll see. So walk me through what, what, like, backpacking is to you. So I think what I really enjoy about it is it's like a forced disconnect. I hate disconnecting for what it's worth. Um, but I really enjoy the outdoors, and – if I don't have a choice but to disconnect in the sense of like, there is no cell phone service, it's like super easy. And so for me, it's, I, I actually just very much like the camping part of it, but I appreciate the, the fact that I have to hike in somewhere semi-serious um, and take some time to get there. It feels a little bit more remote or a lot more remote in some situations. I don't know. It's just like a good escape. Um, I always do it with friends though. You know, I'm a, I'm a social person. So, but uh yeah, I don't, I don't know. That, that escape, it, it felt like it was a good balance. It was a good way to, I've never been like a gym goer. So it was also a good way to like keep in shape. Um, you know, I, I coupled that with deciding if I was going to do more like climbing outdoors, which uh, I think I managed four or five trips. <laughs> so I did not get very far along that endeavor. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a really refreshing thing to do. But I also think it's become super mainstream lately in the sense of like, out here in, in the Bay Area, there's a bunch of cool like uh, parks nearby and like Tahoe is a really well-known area. Um, and when I started, you know, and this was like, it's gotta be like six years ago or something. When I started backpacking around here, you could sort of just with a couple weeks notice go get a permit and it was great, like an overnight permit. And now like the whole summer is basically booked up like instantly, which, you know, kind of sucks, but, uh, but yeah. So that's like a permit to go camping or? Yeah, it's a, it's a permit to like hike in and, and backcountry camp overnight just because they, they want to keep it like, uh, I don't know, manageable, clean. So they only permit so many backpackers in each evening. And it's, it's pretty common here. It's like, a, I think it's a byproduct um, of like a bigger city or a larger population because I live in kind of a rural area. So there's like, there would be no, no permit or anything, but I could see how if you have like millions of people in San Francisco and then you have like a couple nearby parks that like everybody yeah. can dump out into them and just completely overrun it. Yeah. You need a permitting system. 
that makes sense. But yeah, it's, it's good. Do you do any gaming at all? Are you into gaming? Uh, yeah, very much so. Like ever since I was a kid, I actually get a lot of my start with building software because of games. Like early on, I was, um, I got really into MMOs. Uh, I, th- I feel like partially because it's when the internet was just like growing and becoming big. Like I, I played a couple of the first online games and then I would just build like basically like content databases out of those games, like um, to the point where I started learning to like reverse engineer those games and sort of automatically populate the database and stuff like that. But uh, these days I, I'm still into it, but it's more like, you know, some people watch TV, some people read books, some people do whatever for entertainment and like games are that for me, but they do not hold my attention like they did when I was a kid. That's for sure. Me either, man. I actually, when this whole virus thing hit, I went out and got like an Xbox because I've been, I was gaming like my whole life hardcore. Like I remember sitting in front of the TV waiting for Xbox Live to come on, you know, like I think I was in high school, right? Because they were, there was like a big countdown for when Xbox Live would turn on. And, uh, and I played all types of played consoles, I played computers, everything. And uh, so I remember, you know, going through all of that and I would just, I would play like, just all day like all day and then now it's like you know go in there and just rank in the top for two games and then i'm good (laughs) a couple games you know it depends on because for me honestly like i've built up my life enough to where being here and interacting with people is more rewarding for me at this stage yeah yeah i think mine is it's been different since shelter in place of course but prior to that it was like once in a while I would take like a Saturday and I would just like game or kind of do nothing. It was like super downtime, which honestly for me is great. Um, kind of a way to recharge, but uh, it just, especially now with shelter in place, I'm like, I don't know. I can't handle it. It's, it's just too monotonous now. Is so, most of your employees, are they like uh, in San Francisco with you or are they just spread out remote? Yeah, we've, uh, we do distributed. We don't do remote. So we, are primarily here in San Francisco, but we do have two other offices um, in Austria, in Vienna, and in Toronto. Okay, cool. What made you choose those locations? So Vienna was, I'll say it was an accident. Um, One of the first folks that joined the company uh, lived, I don't know if it was in Vienna at the time, but in the area. And I thought for sure I would convince him to come over to San Francisco, and I did not. And so we're like, we'll just spin up a team there. And then that actually worked so well that we're like, you know what, we actually have some leads in, in Toronto. We know some of the folks, you know, let's do the same thing there. So Toronto is still smaller. It's earlier, but Vienna, I think is around 20 people now. So were your first couple hires like salespeople or engineers? I think the first, you know, 15 hires were engineers and that roughly stayed, you know, other than one here and one there, that was like two for a very long period of time. And so were you just getting a lot of sales to people like using the open source product and then wanting, and then that's how, that was like your pipeline for growing your business. So I would have a hard time sort of saying what the pipeline was, but it was very bottoms up and very much like, you know, sort of field of dreamsy. If you build it, they will come. Um, like we just had, I think we had a good reputation or have a good reputation and a good brand and, and people liked the product and it was affordable. So just like top of funnel just existed. And a lot of it was word of mouth. And so I think open source helped with that. It helped grow brand over time. But frankly, the people that were buying Century SaaS were not the same kinds of people that wanted to run Century open source. Um, 
it's just like a different persona half the time. And, and, and we learned this because we realized many people buying our SaaS service had no idea we were open source. They just knew Century was a great product, right? Um, so that actually has done really well. And even today, like, like most of our revenue, and it's, it's slowly shifting, but most of our revenue comes through the self-serve channel where it's just people sign up, pay with their credit card, which to me is the best kind of business you can build. It's super validating. It's also super sustainable. But we are shifting a little bit more where there is a traditional sales org, and that's actually become valuable for certain kinds of customers that are, are used to that and expect that. But yeah, I, I don't know. I think we were, we were very fortunate that we were able to just hire a lot of like engineering personas for a long period of time, and we didn't have to have a traditional sales team in place. Yeah, especially when it's not your strength or when you don't have experience in like building those things. For me, I don't know if you know a lot about my background, but... Um, I've been programming for about 17 years and I built a number of different softwares. And usually what I was doing was I was building uh, prototypes and then selling them off to, to companies, or I was working with venture capital companies to help rewrite systems that were getting funding so that they could scale. Uh, but then I you know, started my, my own thing and I didn't have a lot of sales experience because those businesses, the business just kind of came. It was, it was just kind of there and to build a B2B sales team. And to push that out there is like, it is a massive challenge. I mean, it's, it's yeah. basically like doing something completely new that I had no experience in doing. And it took me like seven failures to find, uh, to figure it out, to figure out like who the right, like, what does that human look like? Like I could hire engineering teams and build those structures all day. Cause I know what those people look like, but to know what a good salesperson looks like was really tough. And then, it, you know, you can have good engineers and then you can have good engineers that could scale teams. Right. Yeah. And so to find, find those great people was, uh, it was a lot of work. How do you like, do you have any tips or have you learned anything about finding great people? You know, I, I think it's tricky. Like I've also been through situations. Like I think there's a lot of great people out there. And I think the mistakes I made when hiring folks was not finding people who were right for the company or sort of right for the time of the company. And my view of the world has always been now like get to know the person much more because you can only trust so much about their execution from what you can enter. Like, like engineers are super easy to evaluate. Like you can come up with a rigorous curriculum for exactly like, are they going to be able to solve this task, but you can still hire them and they'll fail. And my version of that, like at a startup, especially would be like, maybe they're not like, a, they don't have a lot of self-drive or, you know, they're not a very hard worker or like work ethic or something like that, or they can't figure out work life balance. So like, there's lots of ways they can fail, even if they pass that test, but at the very least you can validate the test, right? Like, can they solve the problem? When you're hiring like sales and you're not a salesperson, how do you evaluate that? And then for us, it's like when you're hiring sales and you have a bottoms up business and the buyer is often a developer, how do you evaluate who can sell to that person? Um, and I'll let you know when we figure that out because that is like really, really tricky. But, you know, we've basically just, I, I think the biggest lesson I learned as a founder and especially in my time as CEO is just like trust your gut. Um, and like even when I talk with our current CEO and he's like asking my feedback, I'm like, I have no idea, but like I'll, like, I'll work through it with you. And like, just like, if you don't think it's good, don't do it kind of thing. Like it, it never works out well when like something's telling you it's a bad idea. And, you know, often that comes to hiring, but, um, but yeah, cause I, I think every situation where it's like, it felt like a roll of the dice very much was a roll of the dice and you can see it in hindsight. And I don't think any of those worked out. 
And so we, we went through a lot of uh, challenges and figuring out how to build a sales program. And, and even these days, like our marketing program is basically brand new. You know, we're 120 people in the company and we have, I don't know, maybe four or five in marketing now. And like, we don't do a ton of campaigns and, and the sales team is probably 15 all in. Um, and so, I don't know, I, I think on the counter side, like use your strengths. You know, we knew we weren't uh, good at sales or didn't know sales. And so we always focus on how do we solve problems through product? How do we build a better product that can solve that issue for them? Like, um, but yeah, I don't know. When it comes down to like finding folks who you do not, uh, you do not have the skill set you're hiring for. I, I just think it's, it's really difficult. And then can you give me like the, the 30 second like pitch of like what Century is and why people buy it? Yeah, so this has evolved over time, but the, I always describe Sentry. I, I give up on, you know, simple big slide sentences, but like I think about it, it's like you load up the Uber app, it crashes. We tell Uber's developers about that. And we think that's important because as a, as a customer, all you do is load up Lyft as soon as Uber crashes. You don't actually care. There's no brand loyalty at the end of the day. And so, you know, it's, it's bad that you as a customer experience that issue, but it's really important that the software team can understand and, and address that issue, right? And so that's, that's how we started. We call it crash reporting, error monitoring, something like that. Um, but these days, like a lot of what we do is sort of expanded where that same idea of like, we just want to tell the developer about like this defect in their application. We're just continuing that, but we're, we're identifying more types of problems. And so I, I explain that analogy where it's like, okay, you load the Uber app, it crashes, obviously bad. Like we can all recognize that. But if you load the Uber app and it sits at a loading indicator for 30 seconds, that's just as bad as it crashing. Or if you load the Uber app and it's like putting you at a login screen, but there's no login button, so you can't actually do anything, just as bad as the loading indicator, just as bad as a crash. So we think of like there's all these different, these different problems and, and we just want to be able to identify them, get it to the software team, the product team. Um, and that's it. That's really about like the efficiency of, of being able to achieve that. And I think the difference or one of the big differences in Sentry versus, you know, logging or any of the, the solutions that have existed for decades, right, is we actually do it very deep at the application level. Um, so if you're an engineer, we just capture a ton of data that's really important to you about that error. Um, so you don't really have to go back and say, well, you know, what actually happened or how do I reproduce this bug? And then more so we focus on what we described at the front end. So we focus on uh, device-centric applications, so mobile apps, desktop apps, uh, browser apps, which, you know, basically these days everything is a browser app, and it's actually become really important to have our kind of uh, technology in those applications, because otherwise those developers get no visibility, and they can't really solve any of those problems. Um, but our solution does work everywhere as well, you know. One of the things I thought was really cool when exploring the product was how it could connect, like, front-end application errors to back-end application errors two separate like you could do multiple applications and then it could it had some intelligence with connecting errors and another thing i liked about it was how and i can't describe it like perfectly right now because i haven't been writing code full-time in the past year because of the, the success of the podcast but when um when looking at your error logging and then having to go another place to figure more stuff out like for example like i guess you would call it like like all that meta data about the the sessions or all just all of the information i guess the i'm not describing it great but if you go to the what is it sentry.io yep. yeah if you, if you go to sentry.io 
and you look at the homepage, they've got like a great video and then they've also got a couple of shout outs about different features, but it makes it very clear when you can see those pictures, they're like worth a million words, right? Yeah. But as a developer, I really believe what you're saying after exploring the product of you just constantly double down and make the product better and make it easier for the people to work so that they, they don't have to think. It's just like everything's right here and it's simple and it's also beautiful. Yeah, it's been super important for us to like, I don't know, I, I've always had to waste times in history where, you know, there's a bug on your website or something like that. And, um, you know, if you're lucky, you have logs or something you can go look at. Um, if you're unlucky or work at a real company, you don't get access to the logs. Um, and even if you did, good luck finding the bug. Good luck having enough information in that log to actually understand what the bug was. Like best case, you'd get a little like bit of like the stack trace, which sort of tells you what happened, but that's it. And we always describe it. It's like sort of Sentry, Sentry takes that, um, that stack trace. And it's always easiest to, to visualize it in terms of size. And it's like that stack trace is, is very small. It's like a kilobyte in size or something. And a lot of our uh, payloads, like the information we collect to help make it easier to debug, end up being like closer to a megabyte. So, you know, significantly larger, like sometimes a thousand times larger. Um, and that ends up being very significant because it is very much like if we identify the bug, you always have enough information to be able to resolve the issue. And that's all it's for. Like when we were developing our mission statement, because, you know, we had just built something that was useful. You know, we didn't craft it that way. Like we didn't do it intentionally. So we didn't have a mission statement or any of these other things that you'd have as like a startup, right? And when we were doing it, we just started like working backwards from like, what is the purpose of what we do? And we just started with like, okay, software only exists for efficiency, for productivity. It has no other value in the world. And so if that's true, then we are monitoring, which is where we cluster Sentry. And that means monitoring must exist for productivity, otherwise it has no value. And so that's how we reasoned about it. And so we're like, well, how do we, how do we make sure what we're doing translates to productivity? And, and at the end of the day, it's like, okay, you ship a new version of your application, it's broken. We wanna tell you about it as quickly as possible so you can like address it as quickly as possible. And we wanna make sure you have the right information so you don't waste a bunch of time trying to address the problem. And that's it. It's like pretty straightforward, but it is all about that efficiency. Do you have any stats on like time saving, like the distance between a bug happening and you understanding the root cause like without Sentry and then with Sentry? It's tough. Like I could make up some stuff and tell you I it, think but it we should. Yeah. <laughs> no, like, but like generally like, I've had stuff where I've spent like a week debugging a cryptic error that was just so challenging to understand because of the way systems work. And generally speaking, Sentry, I don't know that Sentry's ever forced me to go down that debugging path ever since it's existed. Like I, I've, I've always had enough information right then and there to be able to solve it. Now it might take me a little while to solve it, but I know what the problem is at that point. And even knowing what the problem is, is often a challenge. Like to make it so it's not something we're just making up, right? You could take a, a, a company, like a customer, and take their resolution times, like maybe in some third party ticketing system or something, take their resolution mm -hmm. times before Sentry and then implement Sentry and then take their resolution times after Sentry and use that as a case study because those business people, they will buy time, right? Because yeah, that's what yeah. we're trying to do. And I that was one thing that like kicked up in the back of my, now I'm not a sales whiz, but from the past two years of trying to make money, 
<laughs> um, with sales teams, like that kicked up in the back of my mind is like, oh, this is the one thing. Like I see that you guys solve stuff faster and it, you got the bugs there, but like, where's that time? You could totally do that with a customer and even your existing customers, you could go to them and say, go look back in your history and tell us the time of rev resolution now versus then. Cause that's a huge selling point. Yeah. It's been interesting. Cause like we did a little bit of this back in the day. Um, like the true ROI is a little bit complicated. What we found is like a lot of, at least our customers at the time, they just didn't care. Cause it's a lot of it's, so the, the interesting thing about our business is it, because it is so bottoms up driven and it's, it's also this like industry wide trend where, you know, it used to be IT teams buy products. You had to sell it to the VP, you had to get their buy-in. And then frankly, they just handed it down to the entire company or something like that. Right. These days it's like, Oh, you want to buy something? Does it fit on my credit card budget? Cool. Go buy it. I don't care. Like as a developer, you know, and that's a newer thing for whatever reason it, it didn't used to exist where developers would get tools or budgets. It was only for, IT software or production like servers or something like that. And so a lot of ours has been like, well, the developer implicitly gets the value. They don't have to make a case for it, frankly, because we charge a fair price. Um, so it's not like they're having to go in and be like, Hey, this arbitrary thing is going to cost us $10 million. I swear to you, it's valuable. Um, no, it's just like we charge a fair price, like a utility to some degree. And, and the developers have been very much the champions of bringing in the orgs. And I think the few times where, it's been a gray area and the price tag has been significant. The buyers have still understood the value. Like what I would say like century is like, we do very well and we're, um, you know, market share wise, we're very, very large, but we haven't had to deal with a lot with like traditional thinkers. Like, um, I don't have a good example here. I, I talked to this guy who ran it for a bank. Um, and it's a bank you wouldn't have heard of. And that's, that's the traditional thinker part of it. It's not like a Wells Fargo or a Capital One. They're actually fairly progressive thinking, but it's like a bank where they're like, we're never going to use cloud software as long as I can. <laughs> it's that kind of like traditional thinking, right? And, you know, they're not our customers and they won't be our customers until they change their opinions about those kinds of things, right? And so because of that, we've been fortunate that we haven't had to do a lot of that sort of you know, more formal or traditional marketing and sales. We're trying to do more of it now, of course, but you know, it, it is like an interesting, you know, benefit, but it's also a challenge because like we do actually need to develop that muscle and, and be good at those things as well. We just have been fortunate we haven't needed it. Yeah. I mean, I, the thing that excites me about your company is I see you're growing. Like I, you guys, you know, a couple hundred close to a couple hundred people right now, right? That's like around the area. But I mean, I see you guys at like thousands of people. And when you get to those thousands of people, I mean, selling value to non-technical people, obviously. Mm -hmm. I and mean, there's entire markets, like one market that probably is one that you guys won't approach for a while is maybe like the government sector market because they send teams um, seem to be so closed. Like everyone always has to make like some physical piece. You have to find some excuse to make like some rack <laughs> they can install somewhere yeah. so that they can have it on site. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, you're, uh, I'm really careful about the like, companies that I hype up or that I'm pumped up about. And after, you know, exploring century, I, I'm just like, I'm all in and I think it's, I think it's fantastic what you guys are doing. Yeah, it's exciting. I like, we're very much here for the long haul. Like when we raised money, so it was interesting when we raised money five years ago, the, the world actually looked very different. Like people didn't quite understand developer tools still. They didn't understand open source or any of this stuff. Like, um, it, it was just, it changed very rapidly, I would say. And I, I remember these conversations with investors for our seed 
and we had revenue. We were profitable when we raised our first round of funding. Um, and I remember one of the questions somebody asked me, they're like, why would anybody pay you? And I'm like, they're already pay us. What are you talking about? There's like, no, but why would they pay you a lot of money? It's like open source. Why wouldn't they just use it for free? And I'm like, who cares? Like, we'll figure it out. That was kind of my answer. I'm like, don't worry about that. And I'm like, frankly, like, they're either not, they're either going to pay us or they're not going to pay anybody else. That's all you need to worry about. And that was like our, our methodology behind it was like create a great product, make sure it's accessible. And like the open source thing was just another way to like be competitive. Even though like we didn't build open source just for a business reason or a marketing reason, but like that was very much like our model going into it. And it's always been like, let's build something great that like is for every developer. And so like kind of from that, that seed stage, it was always like, you know, to the moon, you know, more so than like, let's find it out. And so I think we have a long ways to go, but uh, it's, it's been cool to see what we've gotten to so far. Yeah. I mean, I, and as a developer, like, you know, I'll, I'll play with the open source version, but if I'm going to do something in my business, I want that premium support. I want it hosted. I want the versions, everything already being patched like quickly. I want the commercial version of it and they're usually reasonably priced. So it's not like you're yeah. spending you know hundreds of thousands of dollars to get this. It's usually just a, you know, couple hundred dollar a month charge with some premium version of some SaaS software. So it's not a big yep. deal. Yeah. Yeah. And I always think about it. Like I know a lot of organizations just like building things and that's fine. But for the most part, like we as a business, like we'd prefer to not build stuff that's not our business. Right. And that's, that's most people. So it's like, we just trust that people want to pay for the service instead of trying to become an expert on running it themselves. Absolutely. Do you think, do you think AI is, or specifically like machine learning is going to play a larger role at Century? We'll see. I, I'm, I'm a skeptic around a lot of this because what I would tell you is like Century has a lot of AI. Um, and, and I quite like the best quote I've ever seen about this is if you take any sort of writing about AI and you replace the word AI with some if statements, it will still be very, very accurate because a lot of like this AI and, and machine learning is actually just very simple models. And Century has a ton of models that humans have built. They don't train themselves over time. They don't get better until we make them better but they do create the same kinds of output that you would think of from an abstract way as AI, right? And I think the, the area where that might change over time is like the more data you have, the harder it is to sift through it. And then I think even trickier is data becomes a little bit more unique to you. And I think when those two problems kind of exist together, then you need something that's a little bit more powerful and that can be trained. And to me, until it has like active training, it's not any true version of like machine learning at the end of the day, like, or any AI. And I just think so many systems don't have that. They just run off of static models and centuries full of static models. Um, but to date, we haven't needed anything like that. And I, well, I, mean, I would like, say just, you bring up a good point about static models. Sorry to jump in, but I want to bring this up because I struggled with this a lot as an engineer at first and people started saying AI because I'm like, that's a query. You know, it's a complicated query. They're, they're selling AI when they raise money or when they're doing press releases, but that's not AI, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, and then I started asking myself deeper questions like, you know, am I just being like a curmudgeon? Like what is <laughs> AI? Like, how do you define it? And I've actually, I followed like some, I think Lex Friedman and some other, you know, influencer type people and that are really on the cutting edge, you know, writing papers and things about the AI. And I mean, I guess it's like its ability to reason off of like a dynamically changing data set means it's AI. So that, that means like I could write some query, like a pretty simple query that reasons off of some dynamic data sets and that's technically AI. But it, it, so it's like a really weird line. Like the more you know, 
the harder it is to define AI. And it's just, it's fascinating by how the world sees it versus like how the practitioner sees it. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly is. I think to me, the challenge has always been a lot of what we're doing these days is not new. And I, you know, I'm also a little bit of a curmudgeon in the sense of like, I hate bad marketing. I hate <laughs> when people are selling me like, uh, just frankly lies at the end of the day. And so, you know, we have a lot of random marketing versions of this in our category and, and things like AI ops. I'm just like, what does that even mean? Like, it's like, <laughs> Everything it's really the ops. same product you had. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I think, I think there is a lot of room for innovation in there. Um, I just think practical uses for what I'm going to stick with is like real AI just are very rare and nobody really achieves them. Like obviously like what open AI and, and stuff is doing is like, that's like genuine, but those are not like real products that people are consuming or getting value out of at the end of the day. They're still really interesting prototypes, but, but that's not what any of these companies are building. So. Now I think some of the most interesting AI is like the, uh, the stuff that can take stories and then make new stories. Like for me, that is the area where it gets magical because yeah. that that reaches beyond my current education level and and i've i've done my saturday night like binge of reading the ai articles and reading a like some papers and things like that about what they're actually doing with the corpus of text and things like and all of that understanding but it's just such a fascinating thing when you understand how it's like and I'm going to butcher this, but you understand how it's like looking at the individual letters and looking at the words and figuring out the patterns. And then it can actually spit something out that's semi-cohesive. And mm -hmm. it's like that to me, whatever the underlying mechanics of this universe that are happening for that to occur is quite beautiful. It's, it's really fascinating. I do agree. And I think, you know, I don't remember what the quote is, but there's something and sort of like the test of AI is if it can convince you it's a human, right? And I, I think that content is one of the, like the most successful ways to sort of see, you know, a glimpse of that. Because like, yeah, if it can beat you at chess, sure, but it's not doing anything else. Whereas if it can hold a conversation with you, which if it can generate output based on a bunch of inputs, it could probably, you know, you can extrapolate and kind of reason that it might be able to hold a conversation with you soon. And then, then it feels like it's real. Right. Then it feels like what we as like individuals, not software engineers or anything like that might think of AI as, and that's sort of what I look for in it at the end of the day. Yeah, dude, learning to live is an interesting thing. Like, uh, being able to find meaning and routines that work for you. What type of routines are you in right now? <laughs> Wake up, go to the office, uh, slash the other room spend all day in the office, go home, slash the other room. Uh, I don't know. That's been the worst. Like, you know, we've started breaking out of this shelter in place uh, for better or worse. And I just, I, I couldn't handle the monotony of, you know, kind of stay in your home as much as possible. Like we went to the lake like two weeks ago. Um, it had opened, but um, it wasn't too busy, which was good. Like it didn't look like any of the photos of beaches you see on the news or anything, but like everybody was socially distant. And that was so refreshing because this, this stay at home routine was just, it was, it was killing me. Yeah. It's amazing how much like 
just being around other people, even though you're not, you don't know them or you're not directly interacting with them, just having other people around impacts your, your mood and your sanity. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I was always the guy. I, I love the office. And to some degree that's cascaded into our company is very much an office company. And I truly believe it's much more productive. Maybe that's not for everybody, but for the majority, it's much more productive. And the stimulation you get out of conversation with your peers, the, the bonds you get even outside of work out of your peers, I think all that's like super important. And I, I definitely really miss that. Um, and that used to be my routine. It's just like up, commute, uh, just start the day, really get stuff done, feel good about that. Um, you know, leave, wind down with friends or at home. Um, and it is a very simple routine and consistent, but like it worked really well. And, and these days it's been tricky to find something that feels good, you know, that doesn't feel like you're wasting away to some degree, but you know, hopefully this doesn't go on too much longer. Oh yeah. I like, um, there's this good YouTube video with Simon Sinek. Have you followed him at all? Mm -mm. Oh man, he is great. You're going to love this guy if you, if you check him out. Um, but he talks about this concept of like the different type of neurological reward systems like dopamine hits and things like that and what how our body rewards us and, and what triggers those things and uh, how you can sort of set your routines up and I, I personally experimented with this for for several uh, months about like exploring when I'm planning my time like what type of uh, physiological reward I'm going to get like, do I get a physical one for like that feeling you get after you do like a good run? That's like a, a bonus bump up. You get the feeling of like checking something off or completing a task. That's a different type. And so you've got, I'm butchering it, but you've got these like four or so types of uh, neuro or physiological responses. And you can, when you have those in your mind, you can look at how you've planned your day so that you're like feeling really good. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely get that. I tried to like I bought a house last year and I've I've tried to become a little bit more handy. I've I've not succeeded, but um, <laughs> so I've tried to DIY some things or fix some things or improve some things, you know, and it it's very unsatisfying when I fail to complete it, but the few times I've actually like gone through the project all the way so far, I've been like really good and and that's been a good way to spend time, but but yeah. Have you gotten the nest yet? No, but I did like, I actually wrote a blog about this, but I did uh, part of it. Um, I basically wired up my home to do a bunch of things like with smart devices per se, but it's not the mainstream stuff. Um, so it, it's like basic level stuff. But for example, when the wash machine turns off, um, it will announce over some like in-wall speakers that the wash machine has finished. And so it's, it's actually like semi-useful things like that or... Um, I built something that would just automatically activate the alarm in certain scenarios just because it's really easy to forget that. And, and often the alarm software doesn't have routines built in. Um, so I've tried to build things that like make my life, I guess, more efficient. Um, and that's been kind of fun, but it's a lot of just software stuff more than it is anything else. You know, go to the thing, you know, how did you, how did you do the washing machine one? So there's, um, there's a smart outlet, uh, from this company called Sonoff which if you Google about this, you'll see endless versions of it. Um, and what it does is when the washing machine turns on, uh, it records the power is now on because the, the usage goes up. And then, so when it's been on for more than a couple minutes or whatever, it just says, okay, washing machine's on, it knows the state. And then when the power usage drops to zero, it's like, okay, washing machine is off. It's like very dumb, but it works perfectly. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's actually like super, super useful. Well, 
because you like what did it do before because mine goes bah, you know when it's done yeah so it does have a buzzer but it's like down in the garage so you can't really hear it oh just, so you have a speaker yeah i get it yeah and then I, I, the other cool thing has been like it turns out if you just send yourself a lot of reminders for things that's actually really useful so a lot of these like you know smart home per se uh, initiatives i've gone through have been like send myself a note of and, and my girlfriend who lives with me like sent a notification to us on telegram and so we actually have this house thread on telegram that the system just sends notifications to about like useful events like if we leave the house and we don't turn on the alarm for example it reminds us it's like hey the alarm isn't on and you don't seem to be at home do you want to turn it on and so it's like little things like that which is actually like like very convenient program something in there where like your house sends you a telegram that it misses you if you've like been gone for more than 24 <laughs> hours <laughs> All the Easter eggs. Raise some money and be like, it's AI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, dude, this is good. I, I like you, David. You're a really cool guy. That's a good conversation. Yeah. So as we start to wrap up, uh, people can go to Sentry.io and they can, they've got, you've got like a free version of the product you can start with. Yeah. So um, you can start free. Um, we generally say free is if you're a hobbyist, if mm -hmm. you have a side project or something like that. Um, if you're open source or nonprofit, we often give you it totally free. Um, but pricing is super fair. It starts at 30 bucks a month. If you're a business, it's not a lot of money. Um, you know, it goes up based on how much, uh, data you send. So the more errors you have, the more you're going to pay us. It's good encouragement. Um, <laughs> but yeah, easy to get started. Usually up and running in five minutes. So good domain name, easy to remember century.io David absolute pleasure my friend when this whole social distancing thing's over maybe next year when I'm, i go to san francisco like four or five times a year i'm pretty familiar with it out there i'll let you know maybe your office will be open we can say hello for sure yeah and thanks for having me on the podcast dude anytime cool awesome. all right my friend have a great day yep. all right you too see ya Bye.